RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. Each week, it's Tuesday night. Each week at 7 p.m. Pacific, 10 p.m. Eastern. Each week, it's Mission Log Live. And each week, we come out of hiding and welcome you aboard the USS Mission Log Live because I thought that would be fun this week. I'm Ken Ray. And I'm John Champion. That's right. We're back again. Your Star Trek pals. Here to talk to you, our Star Trek pals. Now, what we do is we talk about Star Trek, as well as the ideas and ideals raised by Star Trek. Tonight, we'll talk Trek for sure, because we have a guest, maybe. <laughs> we have a guest who is not only a fan, but he's a Trek pro as well. He's Max Cervantes. And he has had a hand in Trek for a long time. He's been in front of a camera. He's been behind the camera. He's built some really cool stuff, really cool stuff. In fact, the stuff that you want, the stuff that I want, props, models, costumes, cool stuff. It's the cool stuff. And I'm not even kidding a little bit. That's pretty cool. What we want you to do, by the way, because you said cool stuff over and over again. And forgive me, I was also having an issue. And you know, my issues, well, they're, they're, they're long and they're involved and we can talk about them sometime. Hey, maybe in about five minutes, we'll find out. Um, we do want you to be a part of whatever conversation we have. So please do me a favor, click the Zoom meeting link or use the one tap from your smartphone, or you can pick up the phone and give us a call. 669-900-6833 is the phone number to call. 669-900-6833. You enter the meeting code on the screen or in the description. Um, and then, you know, you get to talk to Earl and then you get to talk to us because Mission Log Live is here for you. Your questions, your comments, your Star Trek topics, uh, you know, whatever you're into, just uh, give us a call. You want to talk about it? Make it so. 669-900-6833. 669-900-6833 or all the other things that we said there. Um, if you're watching on Facebook, thank you very much for joining us. If you're watching live on YouTube, fantastic to see you. You're looking great. Uh, if you're catching the audio only live, uh, excuse me, if you're catching the audio only later, that is fantastic, too. We're glad to have you no matter how you're finding this show. Uh, we do ask a couple of things, so please hit like no matter where you're finding it. And please hit share no matter where you're finding it, because we would love to have more people playing along. Yeah, excellent. And speaking of people. Uh, because th there are people right now watching us people. And uh, let's say hi to the people. So we got Dave, we got Matthew, we got Kim, we got Casey. And he says right right off the bat here, each week, coolly. Uh, you got Alan, you got Paul. He says, hello, fellow mission loggers. That would be all of us. You got Scott Palm. Might have a word or two to say about Scott in a minute. Uh, we've got Dave, we've got uh, uh, Barry. Uh, my, Barry says, my wife has more than a hundred Eagle Moss ships. Somebody stop her. That would be Beth. Beth has over a hundred Eagle Moss ships. That's, uh, are they really just hers? <laughs> you think he's just trying to pass the blame here? Well, is I'm that... wondering because I mean, I've met Beth. She's nice enough that she would share. But the other thing is, I really doubt that she'd be like, no, mine, get away. Yeah. <laughs> no, you don't think so? I, I, I'd, I'd be a bit surprised. Okay, well, we'll find out. We'll have to ask Barry. Maybe, Barry, yeah, give us a call. Let us know. Uh, we got Aaron. We got Donna. Uh, we got Dominic, uh, who says Stovacor is listening. Wow. Okay. Uh, we got uh, Chris. Uh, we got uh, so many people. We got, uh, uh, yeah, people. People, just so many people. And then Scott, Scott says just 100 because I think they're up to like 150 or something at this point. Uh, Dave says, yes, it's the Eagle Moss addiction. And Barry says, yes, they're hers. She doesn't share. 
Wow. All right. Yeah. That's well, you know, it's good to have boundaries. I guess that's a, that is a good thing. Hey, uh, we got nothing coming up to tell people about, but we do have something that just happened recently and everybody went online and they did their whole big thing. Cause you know, this past weekend was the 50th, well, no, the 53rd, excuse me, the 53rd anniversary of uh, the first airing of the cage, September 8th. I want to say it started on a half hour. And there is a reason I remember, uh, you know, uh, the half hour thing. Uh, did you do anything to, to, to like mark the occasion, John? Did you do anything to, to let people know you were thinking about it? Uh, so this year I didn't. Um, I, I, I guess part of the problem is a little bit of overload, like the social media overload. You, you log in and literally like 90% of my friends have all posted the September 8th, 1966. It's the anniversary of the airing of the first episode of Star Trek. So, um, I, there was so much of it. <laughs> I, I just, I, I sort of, I, I didn't, I didn't participate. I didn't feel like participated. Now on the 50th anniversary, because that was mm-hmm. such a big deal. Uh, Larry Nemechek and I hosted a little, uh, get together at Lucy's El Adobe right across the street from Paramount. And every, so it was every hour. And then on the half hour, because it aired, of course, in different time zones and started at different times in those zones, as you mentioned, um, we uh, we did a little uh, a little thing, nice. did a little celebration, did a little Facebook Live thing. A lot of people showed up. It, it was great. And if you ever go to Lucy's, um, you can actually uh, you'll see a big picture of Gene Roddenberry on the back of the restaurant uh, because he would go there as would a lot of people from uh, Paramount just you know, you know need to go grab lunch you need to go have a drink after a long shoot day you go to Lucy's that's what no, you do so it's not like he was tagging it no no okay no. Oh, it might have kinda, I don't know <laughs> that'd be yeah, kind of weird yeah, yeah um, I, I'm sort of where you are on that maybe we need to maybe we need to do a thing Maybe we need to start mm-hmm. doing a thing for the 50th because, or the, uh, excuse me, the anniversary. Yeah, yeah. That's the one that sticks in your head, the 50th, especially because, uh, for me, that was the one where I drove, uh, I was, I was, uh, closer to the Washington DC area at the time, though nowhere near it. Mm-hmm. But Rod, uh, Roddenberry was going to be doing a conversation with people at the, uh, Air and Space Museum at the Smithsonian. They were going right. to show the cage, which they did. And then, uh, and then Rod was going to sit up there and, you know, say stuff. <laughs> like he does. He had people, he had people asking him questions and things, right? And, and there was like a whole VIP section for all the people that Rod was bringing, right? For the, yeah. for the tens of twenties of people that Rod was bringing. And it was me, <laughs> mostly. Uh, uh-huh. And then this couple came and sat next to me and you know, they were nice, but I was like, you know, why are they like right next to me? And then, uh, you know, and, and who are they? That they should, you know, that they should be here. Not like they don't deserve to be there, but I'm like, I, I should probably know who they are. And it turns out I really should have known who they were because I sat next to B. Joe Trimble. Yeah. Watching, watching right the cage on. at the Smithsonian, oh. right? And so then, like, I didn't even know that that's who it was because I had never met her before. I'd never seen a picture. And then, and then, like, you know, Rod says to me, like, well, and, and, and the Trimbles are here. B. Joe and John are here. And he points near me. And I'm like, well, where are they? Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> and it's like, you know, right there. And then, you know, I got to spend some time uh, chatting with them after, which that's was fun. so, so cool. We're not going to come up with anything that's going to be better than that. 
We can well, try. We, no, we might. We could get John and Bijo to come down to Lucy's. We can do that. We get it all together like that. Uh, by the way, uh, when I mentioned that, uh, uh, Brian Hart and Steve Sheridan uh, both mentioned that, that they were there. And I, of course they were. So glad to see them here chiming in about this fun thing that we did uh, three years ago. So I thought we'll, you meant at the Smithsonian because I was like, no, they weren't. No, 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 no. They're, they're, they, just, they're, they're just pretending now. Uh, and by the way, by the way, uh, Dominic uh, is saying Stovacore is a metal band from Trekkies and we love Mission Logs. See, he said Stovacore and I was thinking, oh, like Stovacore, like how do you know? But it's the name of the band. Yeah. Of course. And that is so cool. Uh, from Trekkies or Trekkies 2? Well, because Trekkies 2. Yeah, because the number of bands in Trekkies 2 is pretty amazing. Yeah. Hey, uh, and while we don't have anything uh, extra special coming up to tell people about places to go, money to spend, things like that, uh, <laughs> we do still have the regular, we have the poll question that we do this time every week. Yes, we do. So now last week, uh, last week it was uh, right after Labor Day. It was the Tuesday after Labor Day. And we asked you, how did you spend your Labor Day? Uh, we gave you a choice. Were you relaxing or were you laboring? We were laboring because we were here. Maybe yeah. your relaxation or labor, depending on how you look at it, was watching us do our show. Uh, so 66% of you were relaxing. 34% of you were laboring. Um, yes. Yeah. And uh, this week we have a trivia question as well in honor of our guest who will be joining us in just a moment here. Uh, communicator or communicator is the question. And yeah. the, uh, the options are actually the TOS communicator, you know, the original, like you flip it open like a flip phone, like a razor mm-hmm. crying out loud. Yeah. Or, or are you a bigger fan of this guy right here, which is not one of the ones from Star Trek, but it might as well be because it actually does more. Did you like the, uh, risk communicator from the motion picture? Or are you a bigger fan of the, uh, of the, uh, flip phone, the rocker, the razor, if you will? <laughs> uh, right now, um, uh, the, the old phone is just crushing it. Uh, yeah. TOS, 86%. TMP, 14%. I gave my I, okay. vote to TMP. I did. Did you really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. to TMP. Well, sh- yeah, it makes more sense. We talked about this. Although, see, if, if, if it was a three-way, if it was then, or what about the brooch? See, I'm all about that. Oh, yeah, of course. That's yeah. actually really the one for me because it makes the most sense because this does get caught on things occasionally. This, by the way, for the people listening by audio, I keep holding up my Apple Watch. <laughs> that does get caught on things from time to time. Uh, you know, but, but a nice brooch, it's tasteful, it's subtle, it's functional. I say that that would actually be the, that would be the one for me of the three. But of the two, uh, the TOS communicator is crushing it, which you know may be heartbreaking for our guests, but... John, why don't we find out? I, I just think I, part of, you know, part of the reason this was on my mind is today was the big Apple announcement and they have a new iPhone and a new Apple Watch. And I'm like, this is the communicator and the risk communicator dynamic. That That is what that is. And if you go up to Star Trek II, the Wrath of Khan, they have both. So I'm going to say it's a Bluetooth thing anyway. So uh, it's sort of like, can you afford to get the uh, Apple Watch with the cellular built in, or are you just using it as a Bluetooth relay from your phone? That might be in the 24th century, or 23rd century, how that still works. Why do you suppose they dropped the, uh, why do you suppose they dropped the wrist one? Uh, boy, that, that's a good question. I guess because by that time, you know, next gen had come on the air in 87 and the, and you got the, uh, the brooch as you call it, the, the, uh, the communicator badge. Yeah. So I, I, I don't know. Maybe it is thought that the, the, the clunky uh, idea of a risk communicator, it just didn't, uh, I don't know. Maybe it's thought it didn't work for some reason. That's weird. 
I love it. I love it. And I, and I love Kirk yelling into his wrist, you know, and I, and I love Khan yelling into his wrist. Like I love all of this. So. Well, yeah. there you go. So we actually know somebody who, uh, who, uh, who worked on, uh, who worked on in, in the periphery. I can't remember if you actually uh, worked on the, I think you worked on the piece. Do me a favor. Please do the introduction so we can ask him because I'm feeling <laughs> right. silly now. All right. Well, tonight I'm very happy to introduce a friend of ours, Max Cervantes. Now, uh, Max has been a longtime contributor to Star Trek. You've seen him on screen uh, in some small roles in Star Trek VI and in The Next Generation more than a few times. But then behind the scenes, he's got a lot of credits uh, going back to Star Trek Generations, Deep Space Nine, Star Trek First Contact, Voyager, Enterprise. I'm just saying he's got his hands all over Star Trek. And I mean that literally because he has built so many of the props and models that you have seen on screen. So it's a pleasure to welcome our friend Max. Uh, great to have you here. Let's see, Max, I know is joining us by phone because we had a little bit of a tech issue. Max, welcome to the show. Hey, guys. Thank you for having me. Hey, good to hear your voice. And uh, we'll just ask people to use the, you know, the theater of the mind and picture you wearing either that radiation suit from Star Trek Six or the uh, <laughs> a, a gold uniform in TNG. Yes, technically in, in TNG, I was in the engineering department, which was especially kind of ironic and special for me because of the fact that I started off in the film industry behind the camera building things and Scotty was always my favorite character because he liked, he got to build all the cool stuff. <laughs> well, so I wanted to ask you about that. Was it being in front of the camera that took you behind the scenes on track or was it the other way around? No, it's actually the other way around. I had, I started off working in the film industry Back in 1984, yes, children, there was something that happened before you were born. <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, I got into the film business because of my love of science fiction and Star Trek and all of that other wonderful stuff. I grew up watching uh, The Twilight Zone. And I, even though I was a little kid, I barely remember seeing Star Trek in, in original run. Uh, I don't remember anything specific other than saying, oh, my God, look at that amazing spaceship, you know, and then I caught up with it later in the 70s when they were in, in the deep reruns. And I started off as most other fanboys. I going to conventions. My first convention was uh, Equicon 76 was was put on by John and Bejo Trimble, who I heard you mentioning earlier. And John and Bejo became very old, dear friends of mine. Uh, and, uh, they kind of pointed me in the direction because of going to their convention, I got to start to meet people in the film industry. And one of those key people I first met was a wonderful man by the name of Greg Jean, who, if your audience doesn't know who he is, shame on you. Cause <laughs> I feel it's very important to know your film history. And when I first moved to Los Angeles, I'm here from Southern California, born and raised, but I was from out in the Riverside County area about. 50 miles east of Los Angeles. So it might as well have been out in the middle of Wyoming in comparison. And when I first moved to LA, uh, Greg was one of the very first people to ever give me work professionally. And it was because I had met him at a convention. Uh, so, well, and, 
hang on one second because i mean you say shame on anybody who doesn't know who he is but you know they're listening now so can you have, and, and i'll and i'll be honest myself included because i know it's a name i know but i can't tell you uh why it's a name people should know uh give people right. a bit of backstory well, there greg greg started off also as a fan back even earlier than me and some of his earliest work was in a little known movie that some people might be able to find if you look up the title Flesh Gordon, which is yes. kind of a heavy R-rated takeoff send-up of the old Flash Gordon serial. And Craig built a lot of miniatures and spaceships that were used in that movie. And that was when he was first starting up. But Greg, uh, some of his most notable things I know that people out there will know him from is that Greg built was the head of and of building the mothership for Steven Spielberg's 1941. He was the head of the miniature effects unit for, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, Greg built the mothership for Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And that, that led to him then, <laughs> yeah, exactly, getting my history mixed up. And then that led to Greg being the head of the miniature effects unit on Steven Spielberg's 1941. Um, just tons and tons of stuff. Uh, when I first started and doing little bits of work for Greg, he was doing V, the television series at the time. And um, Greg had me cast up and paint and finish like 50 of these tiny little V shuttles, you know. And if you remember the old TV show, V, they flew, the aliens flew around in these little sort of like, mm, about like minivan sized little space shuttle vehicles. And I asked Greg, why am I making so many of these? He said, one, we have a shot where we're going to be showing the interior of the docking bay from one of the motherships. And I need to have this big, massive shot filling it with all these little shuttles. And two, I know where my bread is buttered. I'm then going to give these away to the people on the production so they'll remember <laughs> me and give me more work. Okay, you know, now wait a and, minute. Um, on V, though, and you're talking about making that shuttle, which was so cool looking. And as a kid watching V that first time around, there was the promise of the V shuttle playset and action figures because there's a kid playing with it in the show. And I yeah. thought, yet one day that'll be mine. And it never came to pass because I guess and it never happened. I know. Yeah. It's just like the premise in, in Short Circuit 2 where. We see, you know, one of the inventors of Johnny Five who's built all these miniature radio-controlled ones because he's trying to sell them. He's trying to get some big toy company <laughs> to make them and sell them. And that's kind of the part of the premise of the movie. Yeah. And as a film goer, I was expecting, yeah, those are going to be out on the shelf this year for Christmas. It yeah. never happened. Same thing I, with B. Yeah, I guess just, you know, a whole line of uh, fascist uh, invading alien lizards. They didn't think that uh, <laughs> Not quite you know, 12-year-olds would really go day. for it, maybe. Yeah. yeah. But uh, uh, so, you know, working for Greg, that, that little bit led on to other things. Um, my, my second job in the industry, I went to work for a, a wonderful guy by the name of David Stipes, who was also working on being the TV show, but he was doing the actual filming of miniatures and I went to go work for, for days for like eight months. And you have to understand this is my, like my second job in the business. So eight months. Oh my God, that's a long time. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, but while I was at Dave's, I worked on B the miniseries, uh, be this, I mean, should say B the series, as well as like, I got my very first film credit working on a film called real genius, which was Val Kimmler's very second movie he had ever done. 
And uh, there is, at the beginning of the movie, there's a army instruction film. We're not really quite sure which branch of the military it is. And they're demonstrating this brand new space-borne shuttlecraft with this death laser on board it. And they're demonstrating how this shuttle will fly up and, you know, get itself positioned and boom, fire a, a death laser from space. And we can wipe out any second country, you know, leader we want from space. And all these military guys are laughing about it. Ha 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 going on. And that was the beginning of the film. And at the end of the film, there's a B1 bomber model that I built, which is also used. So basically my work is at the beginning and end of the movie. Um, and I got my, my very first credit on that film. Uh, so, and things just kind of went from there. But what helped me get my job there at Dave Stipes is that this was back in the age where we had phone books and there were no cell phones. And you called people, you cold called people looking for work on a landline. And I found their name in the phone book and I just cold called them and I made an appointment and a couple of days later, I went out there and I took a few of my little things I had built for myself as a fan. And one of them I took with myself for myself to show was a little hand phaser that I had built from Classic Trek. And Dave liked it because you could, you know, turn the dial and the aspirator pile lifted and it lit up and all this other cool stuff. And he really liked that. So, like I said, I worked for him for like eight months and then just things kept going on from there. Um, you know, I, I worked for another really nice guy named Bob Short. Uh, Bob had done uh, the tale, the mermaid tale for the Disney film Splash. He had also done the uh, cocoons, the underwater cocoons for the film Cocoon. And that was because Bob was an avid scuba diver. So he already had his license and he was already very adept at being in the ocean and all this other stuff. And Bob also was also another big fan. He was a huge fan of like uh, Man from Uncle and The Outer Limits and The Twilight Zone. And so he also respected, you know, my talents as well as the fact that I was a big fan like him. So we spoke that same sort of language. And while I worked for Bob Short, I had worked on Masters of the Universe, the feature film with Dolph Lundgren, uh, directed by Gary Goddard, uh, Captain Power, created by Gary Goddard with Tell Toys as the first interactive toy line uh, in the show. One of the premises is that the bad guys had these flashing things in their chest and the kids at home could paint, point their toys and their guns at the, at the screen and like target practice, you know, pick them off and the gun would register a hit or the toy would register a hit. And it was the first TV program that ever used rudimentary CGI because all of the bad guys were all robots. And this was a time when, you know, there were a lot of parent groups against violence on TV. It's said, well, you can't complain about this, especially in kids programs, because they're shooting at robots. The, the bad guys are these robots and they're not human. So it's OK to perpetuate violence against machines. I, I remember that. Bad show, guys. I remember that show very well and I uh, had a couple of the toys, but never really got it to work right. Maybe, I, I'm just going to chalk that up to user yeah. error. Not, yeah, uh, not, no, not a problem with I, I, Being the fanboy that I was and working on the show when the toys came out, I went and bought them myself and I bought the tapes when they came out. And uh, I, I did discover that they worked best if the lighting in the room was not real bright because then okay. the imagery was screen 
seemed to work better. Anyways, but I worked, I worked on Beetlejuice while I was there. Uh, the iconic object I got to build for Beetlejuice is during that iconic scene where he finally shows up in the suit that everybody associates with Beetlejuice, that black and white striped suit, right? And he comes out and he's wearing that giant carousel on his head and he delivers all his lines and, you know, he goes on. Well, I built the carousel hat for the, for the movie. That was one of the many things that I built for it. And when I had a, a, a meeting, Tim Burton and his art director on the project, uh, Rick Heinrich, who he's worked with on many other projects, uh, they came to our shop and I had a little meeting with them. And I said, well, what does it look like and what does it have to do? And he hands me this color Xerox of, a, of literally of one of his sketches. And if you've ever seen any of his sketches, they're really cool, but they're, they're very loose. It's not like an engineering blueprint that you could just use, you know, to, to work from. And so I had to ask him all sorts of pertinent questions. Is he, what is he doing? Is he walking through a doorway? Do I have to then be careful of how big the doorway is going to be and how, how, how tall, tall the hat's going to be? And he's like, no, no, no. He's just going to be standing in a big open room and he's going to be lifted up on a lift from out of the floor and he's going to deliver his dialogue. I'm like, oh, great. Okay, this solves a lot of my problems because then I don't have to worry about it being exactly the right size, you know, that I'm worrying about he's going to walk around carrying this thing through a doorway and what, and it has to be lightweight because he's carrying it on his head. Well, he's not really carrying it on his head. We fashioned a, um, an aluminum and fiberglass, like a backpack. So basically the carousel hat is actually mounted on, on an aluminum, a uh, piece of aluminum bar that's bent to the curvature of the back of his neck. So you don't really notice it from the front. And all the weights really being carried on the shoulders. And so he's basically wearing it like a backpack. And all the cables that, that control it are going through that thing under his shirt down to the floor. And as a bit of trivia, the next time you watch the movie, when he appears and rises up through the, the, the model as it breaks apart and he's wearing the carousel hat, think about this. I'm laying on the floor underneath the model at Michael Keaton's feet as this thing is going up past me and I'm sitting there with the switches turning it all on on cue because I've been told the minute he starts talking turn everything on one by one you know so turn on the hat so it starts spinning turn on the light so it's all lit up turn on the other motor so that the bat wings on the side of its head will stop flapping and all this stuff and it's I'm laying on the floor underneath him at his feet while all of this is happening the magic of Hollywood. That's that's pretty awesome. And by the way, I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned Bob Short because he was just our guest on the live show. And he's oh, awesome. amazing. I, I just yeah. think he's so cool. And we definitely bonded over Uncle. And only later did I discover all the other things that he had done. Hey, I, I want to switch gears here really quickly because uh, I, I know that you and I share a love of many science fiction properties. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I was yeah. so surprised to read that your first visit to a film set was Logan's Run. Now, yeah. I'm, I'm going to assume that it wasn't at Dallas Merchandise Mart, but rather here no. uh, at MGM when they were shooting the yeah. uh, studio stuff or, or the, the yeah. stuff on the back lot. Can you just give us uh, a quick minute on, uh, on sure. how you got in there and, uh, and what you saw? Well, what, what had happened is that uh, here in the state of California, back in the day, they used to give everybody in schools standardized IQ tests. 
And in the third grade, I tested out with reading and comprehension ability of a second year college student. I would just burn through books and remember it all. And because of that, I got sent away to a private school run by the government for uh, children who were exceptionally mentally gifted. And for the first three years of it, uh, fourth through sixth grade, I had the same kids in my class. I knew who my teachers were going to be because it was all pre-set out for us. And then as I got out of elementary school and went on to junior high school, they continued the program, but it was more like you would go see a counselor every two weeks. And it was to make sure that you were being properly stimulated. You weren't being bored by your work and, and whatnot. And they would sort of like act as guidance counselors. And as this went through into high school, um, in my early on in my 11th year uh, of high school, my counselor, my special teacher, you might say, asked me, what do you want to do when you get out of school? And I said, I love science fiction and horror and monster movies. And I love special effects stuff. And I've just read everything I can. Mind you, this is the pre-digital internet age. You're reading things like Starlog and Famous Monsters of Filmland and whatever you can get your hands on. Because there wasn't anything else. And he said, I'd really like to do that. And he said, okay, well, give me a list of some of your favorite films. And I did. And he saw 2001 Space Odyssey, of which I was old enough to see when it first came out. I was 10 years old, but my parents still let me go see it by myself with one of my best friends. And uh, he was like, oh, okay, 2001. That was filmed at MGM. And in his own ignorance, he called MGM Studios in Culver City, California, here in Southern California, not realizing MGM was actually shot at their, at the time, London studio, which is now gone. Anyways, he called them. The, he asked for the effects department. He got to speak to this nice gentleman, and he explained the situation. He says, sure, I'd be more than willing to talk with your, your students. And next thing I know, my teacher is telling me, I've made an appointment for you. You're going to get to go to MGM Studios on December the 27th in 1976, and you're going to get to go visit the head of the effects department at MGM Studios, who was this wonderful man named Glenn Robinson. So here I am at the gate at seven in the morning, and this big, you know, jolly fellow, this, you know, to me, giant of a fellow comes out and shakes my hand, and me and two of my best friends go on into the studio, and he spends the whole rest of the day with us. Mind you, this is two days after Christmas, and most of the studios are practically shut down. There's like almost nothing going on, which made it perfect, you know, because he was able to spend the whole day with us. He gave us a guided tour uh, around saying, oh, this is soundstage so-and-so. They shot Wizard of Oz here. Oh, and see this soundstage over here? They used to shoot all the old Esther Williams films here. They built a special pool here indoors in a soundstage so they could do all of her pool filming stuff under controlled conditions, no matter what time of day or night or weather and everything, blah, blah, blah. And that's how I got to go visit the sets for Logan's Run. Logan's Run had come out that summer, and I had already seen Logan's Run like 13 times in the theater. <laughs> so I was already hooked. And the, the day that he took me and my two friends, I got to walk through Logan's apartment, the remnants of the ice cave, um, uh, I got to see the miniature city being disassembled. And uh. believe me, that city miniature was not miniature. It, it sat on a tabletop that was 80 foot square. 
square. Wow. The Sandman control tower building, I got to walk up next to it because it had already been taken off the base. They were going to disassemble it and keep it for storage just to make sure. And, but the Sandman control tower building was like six feet tall. And all of this stuff, it was just blowing my itty-bitty little 16-year-old mind. <laughs> and he took us to the commissary, and he said, oh, yeah, that was Lionel Barrymore's favorite booth over there and all this awesome stuff. And I asked him, well, I really appreciate you doing this, but, but, but why? Why us? I mean, you're spending your whole day. He says, well, you know, at first I wasn't quite sure, but the more your teacher told me about you, and it, he, he said, it just reminded me of me when I was a kid and when I first started off in the business. And he said, and I've spent my whole career here at MGM. I started here at MGM when I was only 17 years old. My first movie I ever got to work on was Forbidden Planet. Whoa. And I was like, oh, my God. He said, yeah, you, could, you can imagine with the amazing stuff that they did that I've seen here. One of the other things he took us to later was the scenic department. MGM had come up and had invented a brand new way of painting scenic backdrops that nobody at that time had ever thought about. They dug a big slot in the floor, and they would have these giant cycloramas, is what we're, we call them. You know, it's a giant pieces of muslin that the very talented people will paint backdrops on. And when you see the, the in Forbidden Planet those beautiful Altair Four backdrops. Those are all hand-painted on canvas, and these giant canvas paintings would get lowered into this slot in the floor. This way, the painters could safely paint the parts that are up high, and then just by using a motor, right, raise the whole thing up. So they would always be on the floor, safety, you know, and they could right. do all this amazing stuff. Two of those paintings are still there. Mike and Denise Akuda told me because they had an open house at, at Sony slash MGM Studios a couple of years ago. And Mike and Denise got to see two of the old Forbidden Planet paintings that are still there. They rent them out occasionally. Yeah, that, but, I, I think that at least one of those paintings got used on Next they Gen. They did. In, uh, yeah. and, and, and also got used in Star Trek Four when they're in the Starfleet uh, headquarters. Oh, when it's okay. all before it starts to rain really badly, if you look <laughs> out the window, you can see part of the city from Logan's Run as futuristic San Francisco, right. and then and yeah. then you see it parts of it also getting reused on next gen. So yeah, you can just go rent those things. Uh, but and then one of the last things he took us to is the carousel. I got to walk through the carousel set. It was still showing where it had been burned and blown up from the climax to the end of the movie. And I asked them, well, so what are they going to do with it? They said, well, they're disassembling it right now because the producers feel and the studio feels that regardless of whether they do a sequel movie or a TV show or whatever, they've got plenty of stock footage of this that they could always reuse. They don't need to keep the set up all this time. Right. And it was a huge, huge set. I mean, and he explained to me and showed me how they how they got the, the base of the carousel to rotate while at the same time, they're lifting 18 people up on wires all at, all at once and have them rotate in perfect synchronization with the floor below them. So think of a, a couple of old fashioned record turntables, the lower one 
then has a cable going off to the side with an axle going up to the ceiling with another cable going out to another turntable mounted to the ceiling of the soundstage. And on that other turntable are all the cable mechanisms that are then lifting up all the stuntmen. 18 people all flown in the air at, at simultaneously. Nobody had ever done that before. He won an Oscar for Logan's Run and for King Kong that year. That's the only time somebody in the whole history of the film business has ever won two Oscars in the effects business. And they both went to the same person. Six six nine nine hundred six eight three three is the phone number to call if you have a question for Max tonight. Six six nine nine hundred six eight three three, or you can use the one tap from your smartphone, or if you're on the Facebook page, uh, click all the stuff there. Click it all, just click it all, <laughs> and uh, and eventually you will be in touch with us. Uh, John, we got a little bit of business to do here at the uh, at the bottom of the hour. We do. We're going to ask everybody to hang tight for just a moment. I will make this short. Uh, but those of you who are in the chat right now and can say hi to Scott Palm, do so. Now, you know that for the last uh, few months, we've been talking about the fundraiser that we've been doing over at GoFundMe. This is through the Pop Culture Hero Coalition, an organization that Chase Masterson set up. We have been helping to raise money for Scott's heroic initiative. Now, that initiative is to allow Scott to go into schools and not only reach kids who have serious physical disabilities, but their peers as well with some very important and very Star Trek ideals about inclusion and diversity and self-empowerment. Now, we actually came to the end of the fundraiser. We actually hit our goal and then we exceeded our goal, which was very exciting. By the way, just a handful of shout outs. Uh, shout out to my dad. Shout out to Ken's mom. Uh, shout out to listeners of Mac OS Ken. And special shout out to Mission Log listener Vicki Wells, who actually put us over the top. She's the one who got us past our initial goal, or right up to our initial goal amount. Now, because we've exceeded that goal, and we're going to keep it up for just a little while longer, not long at all, but we want to see how much we can possibly get because the Roddenberry Foundation is matching dollar for dollar every bit that we can raise. So thank you to the Roddenberry Foundation. In order to participate, all we want you to do is either go to facebook.com slash mission log pod or twitter.com slash mission log pod. And the posts that are pinned to the top of the page in both places, that will take you directly to the GoFundMe page for Scott. So you click on those. Even if you donate a buck or two, that gets doubled by the Roddenberry Foundation. And if you can't donate a buck or two, just share that link because every bit of attention that we get will definitely go a long way. So thank you to everybody who has donated so far. There's only just a few days left. We will be making a final announcement very soon. And thank you to Scott. And uh, we can't wait to see this program get launched in schools very soon. 669-900-6833 is the phone number to call. 669-900-6833. Or you can use the one tap from your smartphone or the links on the Facebook page. Uh, Max, we've talked a lot about a lot of different uh, science fiction stuff just in this conversation. But I know you uh, just bumping into you at Star Trek things. The last day of the Discovery uh, exhibit at the Paley Center, uh, I bumped into you there. I've seen you at Star Trek Las Vegas. I mean, as great and neat and as envious as I am that you got to walk around the set of Logan's Run, as cool as the rest of this stuff is, it seems uh, that Star Trek has a has a special pull. I'm curious. Oh. Uh, talk talk to me about about what Star Trek specifically 
uh, uh, what that means to you? Well, I would have to say that as much as I love all these other science fiction programs and such, Star Trek uh, is my heart. Star Trek is where I live. Uh, I, I had somebody say to me, it's like, well, out of all these different shows and movies and stuff you love, if you had to pick one of them to live in, which one it would it be? And I said, but hands down, no problem. No, that's an easy answer. It would be Star Trek because Gene Roddenberry and everybody associated with Star Trek, they gave us this wonderful vision where I get treated as equal, not because I'm a minority, because I'm, I'm Mexican-American, not because of my sexuality, because I'm openly gay, but just because I'm a damn human being. I'm, I'm a sentient being, whether I be Vulcan, Romulan, Andorian, Tellarite, Klingon, whatever. But I get treated as equal just because I am. And it, that sort of ideal of why I love Star Trek so much, you know, um, somebody said to me, it's like, but don't you love Star Wars? It's like, yeah, I do, but it, it's just fun. But I don't want to live in a society where some old guy can walk into a bar and because he gets into a fight with someone can cut somebody's arm off and just walk <laughs> away free. And there's entirely too much sand in Star Wars. That's and, the other thing. And, I, I don't need that in and, my life. Yeah. And they still have slavery. And, right? and even, even the empire under the rebels, they're not doing anything about that. Because it doesn't affect them. All the one percenters who live on Coruscant, well, you know, these backwater worlds like Tatooine, they might be part of the galactic whatever but you know we got it great here so why bother why why bother with the fact that some little eight-year-old boy is being kept as a slave you know and so it's like no i don't, I don't want to live in that sort of society i mean the federation for all of everything it has its problems but you know what they would never allow slavery and they would never allow a planet that practice slavery to be joined with them um you know and for that reason i i wouldn't want to be anywhere except for in star trek six six nine nine hundred six eight three three is the phone number to call six six nine nine hundred six eight three three or you can use the one tap from your smartphone or as uh, as i said before uh, whatever the links are on facebook and i'm not on facebook right now i'm sorry i would tell you exactly where to go but facebook has like a billion people they make it so you can use it. So, I mean, you know, you should be able to find your way there. Um, I know Craig has actually found his way to us this evening. Uh, good evening, Craig. Good evening. Um, hello, Don and Ken. Good evening, Max. Um, I have a couple of questions, but first, regarding that conspiracy episode that you had, you have to shabam it where you get the witness, you get the evidence, and then you do the experiment. You know, yeah. Yeah, yeah, well, it, yeah, you should ban that thing. Uh, and then um, last last weekend was great, uh, was fascinating, talking uh, to that gentleman hanging out at Paramount, very similar to what Max is here. Max, you're blowing my mind. Uh, although I had the 
for the uh, I was able to be on the TNG set, set the first three seasons, and I it just ruined Star Trek for me, knowing what it looked like behind the scenes. So I I, I kind of uh, that was my thing on that. Oh no! But for uh, me, oh yeah! Any, oh your question, Max. My, my question for you regarding any of your works of art, you know that you've created. Do you have a unique inspiration that sparked one of your creations? Uh. I, I hate to disappoint you, but no, because see, when you do work for someone else, you're doing what they want. Your job is to bring their design to fruition. Every once yeah, in a you while, were explaining that, huh? I get to put a little something in it, but for the most part, no. I, I, my job as a prop maker and model maker is to bring somebody else's idea to fruition. It's not my job to throw out ideas. That is the job of very talented people like my friend John Eaves and Rick Sternbach and Mike and Denise Akuda and Doug Drexler and Darren Dockerman. Those sorts of designer and artist types, it's their job, even and even they, you can ask them many times, they might have a, a certain idea for what they want something to be like. And it many times gets shot down because your job is, again, is to give the producer and director choices. And, and they'll go, okay, I like the part of this one, and I like the part of that one, and we're going to put those together, but we're going to change the overall color scheme of it. And, and then after that gets decided by that phase of the design process, then it gets given to me, and then I get told, here are the drawings, go run with it. You have a week now to build that, if you're lucky. <laughs> Did I celebrate? Did I celebrate your abilities and your talent? You know, then it comes well, down to that. Thank you very much. You know, I, I really to... appreciate that because, unfortunately, for all the years that I worked on Star Trek uh, as a prop maker and a model maker, we were never allowed to have our names in the credits because of union rules. Because our shop was a non-union shop. But funny enough, Paramount always came to us because we charged less than their own union shops on the lot, and we could get it done quicker. And because we were fans, we also would make sure it'd be extra good, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah, because the heart, the, the love is there. So that goes right along with it. You know, that's kind of a, a success in life, I think, is finding something you love to do. And on top of that, getting paid for it. So, yeah, oh, it kind of equals it all out Definitely. But, but working on Trek and getting to go visit sets while I was working on it, if anything, that just enhanced it. Because I already knew about how film worked. I was... I had already been working in the business for more than 10 years at this point before I, I worked on Trek. So I knew how the sausage was made, as, as we like to ah, say. Um, yeah, 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 my, yeah. But, but one of my best memories of working on Next Gen as an extra was on my very first day, I'm standing on very, very nervous in costume. It is seven in the morning. It, I'm nervous as all hell and I'm standing around trying not to fanboy on the fact that I am standing here yeah. in uniform and I'm going to get to be on camera on something that has meant more to me than anything else I can think of in my life. And yeah, yeah. There, trying not to look nervous. I'm looking at a, a paper diagram that's taped up on the wall of the backside of one of the sets. So it basically tells people, Here's the bridge. Here's 10 forward. Here's the docking bay. Here's where the transporter room is. Here's where the main medical is. And I'm just standing there looking at it, trying not to be nervous. 
And all of a sudden, I see coming up along my right-hand side is Jonathan Frakes. He just walks over, and he stops, and he looks at me, and he takes a couple of steps backwards towards me, and he puts his hand out, and he goes, Hi, I'm Jonathan. You're new here, aren't you? And I, I nervously put my hand out, and he shook my hand, and he's like, Well, don't be nervous. Everybody's had a first date sometime. You'll be fine. Just, just don't be nervous. And if you have any problems, just come find me. I'm like, Oh my God, that is like, that is so nice because he's one of the stars. Yeah, he did the same to me. Yeah, he was nice to me too. And then he then he gave me this weird, he gave me this weird, like real weird face, toward face look, and then walked away. I I, I didn't know what to say. Oh yeah, he was good. And after that, whenever between takes, you know, normally if we weren't needed, the extras get shushed off to one side to where they had a, a room set up for us to go sit and wait until we were needed. Uh, and they called it the green room. Well, the only thing green about it was the paint on the walls. Because basically there was a bunch of old beat up couches and chairs and you just sat there bored out of your brain. I, I, well, I worked for I Richard was, Arnold. So I, yeah, I'd only be on set for a few and, times. Sorry to interrupt No, no. And, and so I, I was deeply entrenched in the whole filmmaking process. So I would just pull up a box and just sit and watch just sit and quietly watch everything going on because I just love mm. the filmmaking process. And uh, to this day, like I said, I, between takes, I would always sit and hang out nearby or listen to Jonathan's stories or Michael Dorn because they were the two nicest, most friendliest people who couldn't care less about the fact that they're stars on this big hit show. And they just treated everybody super nice, you know, and, and I, I love that. Um, yeah, and the uh, professionalism on the set and everything is just great. Oh, yeah. Well, anyway, so thank you. It was gr- wonderful talking to you. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you. Hey, Thanks Craig, thank, thank you, you. Uh, for calling in tonight. Really appreciate it, man. Hey, I got, a, I got a question for Max here in just a minute, but I want to remind people really quickly about another thing that we remind people about, and that is, of course, all of the different podcasts available on the Roddenberry Podcast Network. Uh, you can find them all at podcast.roddenberry.com. Um, the Trek Files made its triumphant return this week after the special episode last week. Now the Trek Files is back in action. So season, I believe season four, is that four. correct, John? We are in season four, believe it or not. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, they'll, they'll be through all of Gene Roddenberry's files in like a hundred years because mm-hmm. there's really that much. So, yep. you know, don't, don't feel like you've missed everything. You can always go back and listen because there are short dives into the historical documents that are house over at Roddenberry Entertainment. So uh, that's one to check out. Of course, Priority One, that's the uh, magazine show that sort of does like Star Trek news and discussion. Oh, you got your Mission Log, your Mission Log Live, Shabam, and of course, Daily Star Trek News. Did I miss anything? I think that's no, it. I think you hit them all. Yeah. Well, Daily- women, did you say Women at Warp? I did not say Women at Warp. Thank you. I did okay. miss one. That's right. Yeah. Uh, Star Trek through a feminist lens or feminism through a Star Trek lens. You listen and decide for yourself, why don't you? And then, like I say, daily Star Trek news. It's daily. It's Star Trek news. What's not to love? Place to find all of it. Podcasts.roddenberry.com. Or if you're in a hurry, podcast.roddenberry.com. Mm, works yeah, the same so, way. Yes. Yeah. And again, save the last S for savings, I mm. guess, is what they used to say on the mattress commercial. On the mattress, yeah. Yeah. 669-900-6833 is the phone number to call. 669-900-6833. Or use the one tap from your smartphone or click through the links on Facebook. And you'll be on with us. Um, 
Max, you dived right in there without me expecting it into the Star Wars versus Star Trek thing. So I'm not afraid now to ask you this one. (laughs) Practical effects, practical effects versus CGI. Well, of course, I started in the age of practical effects. I love practical effects, but I'm also not so ignorant as to also being able to acknowledge that they have their limitations. And but CGI is such a wonderful tool and you can do so many amazing things with it. But again, it should be treated like any tool you have, like Scotty would say, you have to pick the right tool for the right job at the right place. And sometimes a practical effect is much easier and faster and cheaper. Uh, And sometimes it's just better to do it with CGI and the best effect. Somebody, I think it, I think it was Ray Harryhausen who said the best effect is one that you don't notice was an effect. You shouldn't watch them and go, Oh my God, that was a great effect because the effect shouldn't pull you out of the storyline. So to me, the best is the melding of both, you know, the best effects is the melding of both. If you can do it, with a model, I, I love seeing practical effects being done. And then you go back in and you sweeten it up with a little computer work here and there. Uh, the, the new Dark Crystal program, Age of Resistance, is amazing for that reason. Because they're using old school Muppets. And then they're going back in and tweaking them a little bit. you know. And the backgrounds are CGI with real models. And it, it's a wonderful showing of what you can do with both of them. Very cool. Hey, uh, some questions that are coming in from the chat here. Uh, Chris asks, can you just please name check some of your Trek creations, some of the uh, props or models that you worked on? Uh, he would love to know. Uh, well, well, uh, on, on Trek, there was not so much models because by that time I was mostly doing uh, hand props. Um, I started working on Next Generation in the middle of the fifth season, and that was because from the middle of the fourth season to the middle of the fifth season, I actually, that's when I did my tour of duty of working as, uh, as an extra on next gen. And, uh, so I was in next gen as an extra from the first episode I did was, was the nth degree, which is a great Dwight Schultz Barkley episode all the way to the middle of the fifth season. And I think the last episode I did think I did was the game that was that really nice episode for Wesley. And then in between then in the, in the hiatus between season four and five is when they shot Star Trek six. And because the same guy at central casting was doing all the, was then given the job to do all the extras casting for Star Trek six. He just said, well, all of you people are familiar with the way the Star Trek people work. I'm just going to, if you, it's okay with you, I'm just going to put you all up. And you can all be extras in Star Trek Six, so you have some work during the hiatus. And I ended up being an extra in Star Trek Six, and completely—that's how life is in the movie industry. Random. I only worked on Star Trek Six as an extra for two days. But one day I was a Klingon extra in the courtroom scene in Rura Pente, and I'm wearing a full over-the-head mask, so you can't tell me from anybody else. But in the other day, I was a Starfleet extra. And I had already gone in for a fitting for one of those white radiation jumpsuits uh, that were around all the way from the beginning of motion picture. And uh, 
we were there on the day we were going to shoot and I'm getting on my white radiation jumpsuit and I'm seated, putting on my boots and in comes Michael Dorn to come get suited up. And he recognized me. He came over and he said, hi, Hey Mike, how you doing? I see you, they roped you in for this one too. And I kind of just shrugged my shoulders and said, yeah, it, it's money. It's money. And he laughed and he walked away and all the other extras turned and looked at me like, well, who the hell are you that a principal comes over to you and talks to you? And I just kind of shrugged my shoulders and I said, I've been working on next gen as an extra. That's all. I'm nobody special. He just recognized me and was being polite. Anyways, and so later in the day, the first half of the day, I didn't get picked for anything. And I'm like, oh, well, you know, I got paid for the day. It doesn't matter. And then after lunch, we come back and the, the second assistant director is the person on set who is responsible for looking after and basically corralling all the extras, the background people. And because that way it leaves the director to be able to focus on getting the shot he wants and the performance out of his main actors and everything. And she came over and she looked at us and she goes, okay, um, you, 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 and you come with me. And she walked us into main engineering, which was the main engineering set from next gen, but it's been slightly retrofitted to kind of look a little bit more like, you know, the, the original Trek period, kind of, but she gave us our marks. And if everybody's familiar with the way that engineering set is on next gen, there's that curved plexiglass wall, which is basically like Jordy's little sort of like office space. And there's a, there's a console behind the curved wall. She gave me my mark, which is where you stand. They mark it by putting pieces of white tape on the carpet. And she said, okay, you stand here, you here, you here, here. I'm like, oh, great. I'm never going to get seen here because I'm behind the plexiglass wall. And I can see the cameras sitting out there right next to the warp core. I'm like, I'm never going to get seen here. Well, as we get ready to rehearse the shot, they moved the camera from where it had been to right in front of me, literally like two feet in front of me. <laughs> and... I'm like, oh, my God, this is awesome. I'm going to get seen. And then they get ready to rehearse the shot. And I notice there's still a set of marks on the floor that are red that nobody's come to take yet. And in comes Jimmy Doohan in his full Scotty regalia. And he's standing right next to me. And my little Star Trek fanboy is trying not to explode from everything in my mind going, Scotty's my favorite character. I'm getting to stand next to Scotty in the movie. Scotty is my favorite character. I'm getting to stand next to Scotty in the movie. And they go and shot, shot the scene, and the, the scene starts with the camera turned around, looking at the warp core, and Nicholas Myers does wonderful camera work, you know, for limited budget and everything. And he does this great shot where he follows the warp core down, follows an extra across the set, and then the camera pans from person to person to person, and I'm the last person the camera comes to before it then starts to move off of me and it continues and ends up on Scotty. That shot was done 13 times. <laughs> they never like doing things 13 times because it, it's a long, complicated shot. And unfortunately, the guy who was standing next to me he had been told to tilt, have his head tilted way down. And as the camera would come in front of him, he was told to tilt his head up, look up skyward. But he couldn't see the camera because he had his head tilted down. 
so to get the timing right, just because of him, we shot it 13 times. Uh, you could kind of see on the rest of the crew behind the camera, they were getting kind of, shall we say, annoyed is the <laughs> polite way of putting it. And finally, somebody told the, the extra standing next to me, they said, look at the shadow on the floor. You can see the shadow of the camera, right? And he's like, yeah. I says, when you can tell the camera's pointing at you, look up. And so <laughs> they had to literally tell him, you know, something like that. Luckily, I, I was in the opposite direction. I was already looking up, and they just wanted me to look around. So I, I kind of start with my head level, and I kind of look up generally, and I look back and forth. It's during that scene when the Enterprise orbiting um, – Oh gosh, I've forgotten the name of the planet, and every single fanboy out there is going to smack me for it. And if they've gone, oh, they've gone to the Kittimer conference. They're orbiting Kittimer. They're being tracked by the Bird of Prey under the command of General Chang that can fire while still cloaked. And so they're doing the whole submarine movie bit while we're we're being chased and being shot at, you know. And so that's that's why. And we're all sweating. That was a whole other level of discomfort to that shot. Not mentions of Thuy 13 times, they, the makeup people, to make us look extra intense, sprayed us with a material called glycerin. Glycerin is like sugar water, but thickened to uh, almost like a honey consistency. They'll spray it on people to make them look sweaty because it does not evaporate under the hot stage light. So it's great for that purpose. What's not great about it is it also will make your skin itch after a while. And we were told, if you kind of get the urge to itch, don't. But just put your finger on the area where it itches and just gently press, and that will get rid of it. And amazingly, it worked. So there you go. Max, um, uh, yeah. you, you have amazing stories. I, I'm so sorry that we're up against the clock and we're at the end of the oh show. but. I, I can sum it wow. up here, though. Uh, Chris Riker, one of our viewers, uh, a little bit earlier in the chat room, he just said, where's the envy emoji? And uh, <laughs> and that's how we all feel about these fantastic behind-the-scenes stories. Uh, thank you so much for uh, for joining. Oh, thank you right? so much for having me. But yeah, to I mean, quickly, quickly answer somebody's question about the props, I sculpted the new com badge that they started using for Deep Space Nine and Voyager. So it's a gold bar with a slot through it. I sculpted the new one of that. Uh, I helped make the new phaser rifles for First Contact. But really, I mean, they're from the middle of Star Trek, I mean, middle of season five of Next Gen all the way to the beginning of Enterprise. There's a lot of stuff that I and all of my, my very talented coworkers built. So to just name a few, it's like that would be a whole show unto itself. Yeah, indeed. But I indeed. have to thank you guys so much because I didn't even get around to my Whoopi Goldberg story on, on the set of Next Gen. <laughs> so I'm just going to tease y'all with that. And that means you have to have me back. To hear well, that we will. And, and there are already people asking us to have you in our uh, VR experience. You did a, a voiceover for us in there. We'll have to have you as a special guest there sometime. And, uh, and Oh, wonderful. Work. I would love so, to. So, and, uh, and, and John, just to let you know that I, I share your love of Star Trek motion picture. Yes. I am wearing my Star Trek motion picture T-shirt right now, uh, and I've already bought my ticket to go see the movie. I'm going to go see it three times over the weekend. <laughs> nice. All right. Well, I might see you there then. All right, man. Cool. Thank you so much, Max. Till next time. Well, 
thank you so much, John, and thank you so much, Ken, for having me. I really appreciate this. It's a lot of thank- fun. Thanks a lot, Max. Hey, one remind everybody, Mission Log Live is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment, executive producer Rod Roddenberry. Technical production on Mission Log Live by Earl Green. Be sure to visit podcast.roddenberry.com for the latest from the Roddenberry Podcast Network. If you'd like to support Mission Log directly, that'd be fantastic. Patreon.com slash Mission Log is the place to do that. Thanks to everybody who joined us live or later, and we will talk to you next week. podcast.roddenberry.com The Roddenberry Podcast Network